Okay, so we had seen three general guidelines pertaining to the, the teaching of discipline or the instilling of discipline in our children. Uh, the first was to make sure that the rules are relatively few, clearly explained and reasonable. The second is to never respond to actions which are calculated to manipulate you into moving boundaries. The third was to when you speak, when you command, expect to be obeyed the first time and every time. And so now we'll, we'll move on a little bit here to a rule number four, which is relatively easy to talk about, not so easy to put into practice if we don't have an instinct for it, and that is command respect. Know how to command respect. It's not a question of demanding respect. It's a question of commanding. There's something implicit, there's something automatic about it in a certain sense. We demand respect, we say to a child, you pay attention to me, young man. That's demanding respect, demanding attention. You'll get it for the moment. But you should never have to say something like that. It's something that should come almost automatically from your tone, from your bearing, from your past history with the child. When you speak, he automatically listens. It's a question of, firstly, understanding our authority. As a parent, a teacher, who's certainly a friend, because a friend is someone who cares about another and will pay the price for them. But parent-teacher is not buddy. Your child doesn't need a buddy. He has buddies. He needs a dad. He needs a mom. He doesn't need a buddy, and it's not that that God asks you to be for him. Parents and children are not on the same level. You're an adult. You have the authority from God. You are responsible for Him. God gives you a certain grace to take care of Him, to guide Him. A child is a child. Very limited in experience, very limited in vision. He's only a few years old, three years, ten years, even fifteen, even eighteen. He's not on the same level as an adult. The problem with our world is we sort of, we pretend that there's no gap. The modern world doesn't believe in authority. So we're all on the same level. The modern world teaches parents to be democratic, to sort of have a democracy in their home where we all decide together whatever needs decided and then we go from there. Parents will ask the opinion of the child on anything and everything. And it sends a message that the child is on the same level as the parent. If the child's viewpoint matters as much as the parent's, 
what, on what basis do we build a respect where a child is expected to look up to a parent and therefore to follow him? To pretend there is no gap also rings false because the reality is that there is a gap, a tremendous gap. We have examples, certainly in today's society, very much so. One that comes to mind for me is just a, it's a clear one. Is only the, re, the only reason I use it was our late Holy Father, Pope John Paul II. I remember when he was he had the the Bob Dylan concert, and where Bob Dylan came to, I think it was in Rome, you know, to to sing before the Pope. Well, the attempt is to show we're with the world. We understand where you're at. It comes it comes across as silly. Youngsters who are into rock music will look at that. They won't say the Pope is cool. Bob Dylan's not cool to them. He's an old man. They won't say the Pope is cool. They might say isn't that cute? But cuteness isn't what we're looking for in the relationship between a Catholic and, and the Holy Father. And it's the same thing with us in a family. It's not being a buddy, accepting where the children are at and trying to be like them and where they're at. Right? The baseball cap on sideways or the music or the dress or whatever, right? that will never, it will never ring true, and it will never establish the reality that you're on a higher plane by the position that God has given you and by the experience that life has taught you and so on. And so there will not be a respect and esteem and a certain veneration for the authority that commands respect. So there really should be, and this is something we have a hard time with in our society, there really should be a boundary, certainly permeable, because sometimes we have to break that boundary, but there should be a boundary between the child and the adult. A parent, or any educator, has to adapt to the weakness of a child when he deals with that child, but he also has to reflect the grandeur of the God that he represents and the authority that he holds. So it's a question of understanding our authority and then exercising our authority in a way which commands respect. And that means calmly and firmly. The calmness is important because it expresses the fact that you, are, you don't doubt that you will be obeyed. You, you are certain that you will obey. Even though you know that sometimes a child will disobey. Of course he will. But when you command, it's not, you're not expecting him to do the opposite. You're expecting him to do it. And if he doesn't, well, we have to deal with that. But you expect to be obeyed. When I'm in a classroom, and it, I, I admit 
the collar helps tremendously. But if I tell the kids do something, I expect them to do it. I'm surprised when they don't do it. And I'll deal with it at the time, but I certainly expect them to do it. And that, that certitude is communicated and already helps command respect and facilitate obedience. So that calmness is very important because it expresses the certitude, also because it shows a mastery of self. If your child, you know, he's throwing the baseball in the living room when he knows he shouldn't do that, and he throws it through the window. If you can respond to that calmly, I don't say without anger, but I say calmly, in command to yourself, that speaks very loud. You are in command of yourself. And it's the same thing with our moods, our emotions, our passions, any of our passions, right? We have, we have to show we're in command of ourselves. We're human beings. We have our moments. But we're talking, this is our ideal, and we understand why it's important and why we strive for it. Calm, quiet authority is the strongest kind of authority. It's not the loud one that screams and people move that has the stronger authority. It's the quiet one who speaks and people move. Much stronger authority. I don't know if you're, you've heard Bishop Fillet, for example, speak. He's a very quiet man. But he commands respect. And a lot of that is, is the episcopacy. And he's talked to us about that. He said it's, it's tangible. The authority that God gives with being a bishop. But it's a perfect example of you don't have to go out and blow up a room to get the attention of those in the room and to command them. You simply, there's something inside that commands the respect. Part of it's the calmness, part of it is the firmness. I said that calmness expresses the certitude that you will be obeyed, the firmness expresses the will to be obeyed. I will not allow you, young child, to not obey me. And of course, the way we command expresses that. Too often those in authority, and I'm all for being polite and courteous, of course, but too often when parents command, they command in such a way it seems like they're asking, will you do this for me? It can be enough if already the child has been taught to obey. Already the respect is absolutely there. But very often a parent is asking because it's very much up to the child whether he does it or not. Sometimes it's not even asking. It's begging. I don't know who it was that I was reading. They made the point, and it's not mine. Entreaties are made by inferiors. Or at most by equals who are asking for a favor. And that's not what we want to send to our children. We are parent figures, a father figure, a mother figure. So in authority, benevolent authority, looking out for the child, but authority. Benevolent, 
critically important, but authority, capable, determined, able to do whatever is necessary for the good of the child. We have to believe in our own authority and in the duty to make ourselves obeyed. I remember one time I had, it took a group of girls to, to Browerville to visit the sisters up there. Good group of girls, good kids um, from, the, from the high school in St. Paul. And we, of course, wasn't just interested in, okay, this is going to be a religious thing. And we wanted to make it fun for them and something that unified the girls and so on as well. So we let them stay at a hotel. And, of course, I had supervisors, chaperones with them, but the chaperones were in a different room. And I, at the, I obviously wasn't going to be hanging out at the hotel with them, but I took them there, and of course I got some treats for them, and they're going to get ready for bed and then play games and do the whole sleepover type thing. But the next morning was Mass at 7.15, so relatively early. They're going to have to get up and get to the convent and so on. So I said to them, all right, girls, the rest of the evening is yours, but I do want you in bed and lights out, and that means, okay, we're done. 10.30, I don't remember which time it was. And one of the girls, a good girl, but she said to me, who's going to check on us? And I looked at her and I said, nobody. You're just going to do it, right? And she said, yeah. <laughs> the next morning, it was very funny. She was talking at table, right, and they were all laughing. And I came over and said good morning to them. And the same girl said to me, Father, you'll never guess what I dreamed last night. And I said, what was it? She said, I dreamt that we didn't observe curfew, and you were so mad. <laughs> I'm sure they kept curfew. I didn't have to be there to know. I'm sure they kept it. Right. So this, this is commanding, commanding respect. And of course, part of that firmness, when we say firm, we mean we don't back down. Now it can happen that you make an, a, a command and then you find out, whoa, I didn't know that picture at all. Well, then you say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. Of course I don't mean that. Right. You back down. That's a different thing than they manipulate you to back down. But when you do, if you do respond to manipulation or out of sentimental weakness or you just change your mind because, oh, that's okay, forget it. Right? That, in a, that undermines your authority as a parent. Yeah. Right? And as I said before, especially if the child was yeah. looking just for that, it sends in the message that if there are, there are really no boundaries unless, unless you can't get around them. Right? So... As I said before, lines. I can't emphasize this enough. You know, don't command what you are not determined is necessary to command, and don't command what you cannot enforce either. If you know you can't enforce something, better not to command it. You just undermine your own authority. And the same, as I said before if you're not willing to enforce it, even more so.
And this brings up another thing as sort of a little corollary, and I won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's something as parents that you've all experienced. It's so important that you're united then in the commands that you give your children, that there's a united front there, that the children know that mom and dad are on the same page. Very often it happens, and sometimes it's the other way around, but very often it happens that the father, because he's a little more gruff and so on, the mother thinks the father is too harsh. The father, on the other hand, thinks the mother is too soft. Both try to compensate for what they think is lacking on the other side. The one thinking the firmness is lacking, the other thinking the, 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 the gentleness, the love is lacking. But now we have the two working against each other. And of course, the children pick up on that very easily. Children are very adept at playing one spouse against another. Now, a child will go to dad and ask him for something, and he says no, and they'll go for mom, to mom and ask mom without mentioning that they asked dad. And hoping that mom will say the opposite, then they go back to dad. Mom said we could. Now dad's in a pickle. Now dad's got to say, well, I said you couldn't. Or say, let me talk to your mom, but it doesn't really matter what he does. It's damaging to the authority at that point. So a good rule of thumb, very simple. But if a child comes and says, can we do this? You say, what does your mom say? What does your dad say? Whatever the case is. I remember when we were kids, we thought that dad was the tough one. So we used to go to mom. And we would go to mom. And now that I'm older and I know my mom in a different way, I know that mom was every bit as tough as dad. In fact, sometimes we would go to mom and say, could we do this? She said, well, I'll talk to your dad about it for you. Go to dad and say, they're asking to do this. We don't want them to do it, right? (laughs) I'm sorry, <laughs> we can't do it. <laughs> they were very much united, very much united. Right? Of course, it's important. You're just making sure you're on the same page when you give a permission, but also if the permission has already been given, right, you don't question that decision in front of your children. You might go to your wife or your husband later who made the decision and say, why did you do that? But not in front of the kids. Not in front of the kids. Sometimes if the parents really aren't on the same level, and it can be with perfectly good will on both sides, obviously the father is the ultimate authority. We have to be careful. Maybe a wife can't go as far as she really thinks she should. Or maybe even as far as she knows that if things were ideal, she would go. Because she knows if she does go there in the concrete circumstances, she's going to undermine the father's authority and therefore, together with his, her own. It can be very delicate. That united front is so important. Part of commanding respect is we shouldn't try to convince our children that what we've asked them to do, we have a right to ask them. We shouldn't try to convince them that we are right to ask them to do what they're doing. 
Another we shouldn't kind of convince them and get them on our side with it. It's not that we shouldn't give reasons. Father uh, Dr. Rosman, who's I mentioned this morning, says, "Give them reasons, but don't reason with them." It's a very important distinction. Obedience is something reasonable. In other words, it's according with our in accordance with our reason. Right? If somebody said, "Go jump in that pond in the middle of the winter," the child would be crazy to just go and do it. Well, Dad said, "Do it." Well, no, obedience is reasonable. And so we teach that to our children, especially as they get a little older, not when they're three and they don't have a reason, but as they get older, you give the reasons. Uh, no, you can't go to so-and-so's because it's a school night and you haven't finished your homework yet, so maybe next Monday or next Friday or whatever. Right? You give the reason. But there's a difference between giving reasons and expecting the reasons that you gave him to convince him that that was the best decision. Because... You won't, most of the time. Dr. Rosman is really good on this. He says, look, if a child likes the decision, he doesn't ask for reasons. Because he doesn't care. He likes the decision. It's only when he doesn't like the decision that he's going to ask for reasons. And if he asks for reasons, it's so that he can argue the reasons. And that's perfectly true. If you tell your, you know, your your boy he can't he can't go bowling with his son, his friends Sunday night because he was out both Friday and Saturday and it's late and he's got school in the morning and his homework's not done, that's very reasonable. But you can't tell him all that and expect him to say, "Oh, gee, thanks, Dad. You were awesome to help me see that." Right? That, that, <laughs> you know, that's Dr. Russell talking like that. Right? He's, he's you're not going to convince them, and that's not the point. We're not we're not trying to convince them. The reason why we command as parents is because we can see what the child can't see. And we have a maturity that the child doesn't have. That's why he needs a parent. So we simply, we command, we give the reason, and that's the end of it. And if a child responds and says, well, what about this, what about this, what about this? The worst thing that you can do is go into an argument with him. Because by going into the argument with him, you're giving validity to what he's saying just by that. It's much better to simply say, I'm sorry, but this is the way it has to be. I explained it. <clears throat> it maintains your authority. Yeah, maintains your authority. So, know how to command respect. Also, very important, next rule, rule number five. Oops, I didn't even put the number up there. Rule number four was command respect. Know how to command respect. And then rule number five, make sure there are consequences to actions that are out of line. Make sure there are consequences to actions that are out of line. <clears throat> One of the most important lessons your child can learn for life, for real life, is that our actions have consequences. As adults, we know that that's very much the case. 
if we don't show up for work and we don't call in sick, you might get away with it with a slap on the wrist for once or twice. But if it happens very often, you're gone. If we speed, you're pulled over, you might get away with it once or twice with a slap on a wrist. But eventually, you're getting a ticket. And if you keep getting tickets, you lose your license. And if you drive without a license, you go to jail. There are consequences to our actions. With our children, we have to be careful not to treat all of their actions as acceptable by not responding to those that are unacceptable. If we treat all actions as acceptable, we send the message that all actions are indeed acceptable. And if there are no consequences to our misdeeds in childhood, how can we ever blame the child for not understanding in adulthood that he's responsible for his actions and for the consequences which are part and parcel with them? I had a young man who had gotten addicted to drugs. And I'm falling away from the faith. Anyway, he came and talked to me about a particular matter. And it was interesting. He was very frank. He said, Father, I never believed that there wasn't a way out until I was in jail. Because Dad always bailed me out. No matter what happened, somehow he bailed me out. And then I was in jail. And for the first time I had to say to myself, Dad can't bail me out. I'm stuck. It took that much before he learned there are consequences to our actions. That's a very sad story. So there are two things that our children must absolutely grow up understanding and understand as they grow up. One, that if we say something, if you say something as a parent, that you will be responsible for what you said. That you will follow up on what you said. That he can be sure that if you said this will be the result, that will be the result. The second thing that they absolutely must understand is that if they don't do what they're supposed to do, there will be consequences. And they are responsible for those consequences. And they alone. You teach this to them in everyday little things. If a child gets poor grades, whether or not it's because he struggled or, or, or tried, let's say he didn't try. Well, all the more so in that case. But even if he tried, poor grades, they're not acceptable, so I'm going to help you to do better. You have extra work. It's a consequence because the, 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 the outcome of his effort was not acceptable, so there's a consequence to that. Obviously, you take into account whether he's trying or not. There's a consequence. 
if a, if a if a child gets in trouble, he you know he gets in with the wrong crowd and he bashes mailboxes and he gets arrested. Leave him, leave him there overnight. Leave him there in jail. I knew a mother. She had her son. She was, she was struggling with meth abuse. It took a lot from her. But she finally got to the point where she would not bail him out. If he got, if he got stuck, if he was arrested, she let him stay. She gave him the, let him be the maximum outcome. It's a little bit late at that point. In everyday little things, we can do it too. You tell your child to clean his room, to pick up his toys. He doesn't pick up his toys. Make sure the toys disappear. My parents used to do that. Clean up the toys. They don't get cleaned up. The bat and ball disappear. Mom, have you seen the baseball bat and ball? No, not quite some time. Not since I saw them in the living room, actually, on the floor. Eventually they would pop up again. There are consequences to our actions. Most parents, most parents, micromanage their kids. They do everything possible to prevent bad consequences to their children's actions. When that's the only way the kids will learn from their actions. To give you an extreme case, this took place in New York, where I'm from, not so many years ago. There was a, a judge, frankly, who had a son who was 16. He bought him a car, blew the transmission. So he fixed the transmission. Kid wrecked the car. So he bought him another one. Blew the engine. So he fixed the engine. Got tickets for heavy speeding. Got him off. As a judge. Then his son was in an accident. Over 100 miles an hour. Through a barbed wire fence. Severed a telephone pole. Split the car in half. Two other boys in the car. Miraculously. They lived. Do you know that the father got him off the hook and bought him another car? That's insanity. Most parents would not go to that point. But most parents do everything they can on a lot lower level, a lot simpler level, to prevent bad consequences to their kids' actions. Kids drop their toys, they drop their clothes, mom goes around behind them, picks them up, puts them away. The kids don't do their homework, they put it off to the last second, they can't get it done, dad's leaning over the shoulder, making sure they get it done. The last second. They'll cover for them, They'll argue for them, the teachers and the schools. Right? When the teachers try to give a consequence because they didn't do their work or they waited till the last minute or they didn't pay attention or they didn't take their homework home because they didn't listen. Right? And so the parents are right there. Why? Out of a good heart trying to prevent suffering to their child. 
and sending the message all along, there are no consequences to your actions. So it's so important. We have to use our head. And remember we said everything we do, we're teaching our children. We can't just follow the heart and say, oh, it hurts to see that happen. We have to say, you know what, maybe he needs to see that happen. Hopefully he'll learn from that. Next time we'll do better. Make sure there are consequences to actions that are out of line. Rule number six. Correct. Prudently. And patiently. Correct prudently and patiently. Remember, we want the spirit of the child to be strong. We want him to know that he has something to give. We want him to know that God has a great plan for him. We want him to know that we believe that he can achieve, if he gives what he has, with God's grace, he can achieve that ideal. So we don't want to crush the spirit of a child. We have to discipline him. Sometimes that discipline becomes correction, punishment. It should never be done in such a way that it crushes the spirit of the child. The will is tough. We can oblige a hard consequence of our children. I remember one time, because I didn't feed the dog, which was my job, and this had happened a number of times, when I came to the table and Dad said, did you feed your dog? I said, oh, I forgot. And he said, well, go feed the dog, but don't come back. I don't remember whether I ate later or not. See, it didn't make that much of a mark on me. I know that Dad wasn't upset. He just said, go and do it, and don't come back. And next time, you'll remember what it's like for the dog to be hungry, because you were hungry. That's a hard thing. But there's a difference between a hard thing and being harsh in giving that punishment. Disparaging remarks, scornful remarks... Right? Why don't you just grow up? Don't be such an idiot. That was intelligent. You know, sarcasm like that. Uh, that crushes the spirit. It doesn't form. It doesn't elevate. It doesn't correct. It simply crushes the spirit. That's what we want to avoid at all cost. Right? And remember, when it comes to correction, when it comes to punishment, right? It's not the fact that we, that we punish that will ever create resentment in a child. It's the way we punish that creates resentment in the child. If it's done with scorn, if it's done in a way that's humiliating, we humiliate the child. If it's done with a sense of vindictiveness, you dishonored me, you embarrassed me, how could you do that to me? Now you pay, right? Or if it's done excessively, right? the punishment far outweighs the offense. Right? Now that creates resentment. 
but it's much more the way the punishment is given than the fact that it's given that causes a problem. So there's always, when we, when we punish, remember, firstly, punishment is meant to be corrective. In other words, to help the child get back on track towards that noble ideal. It's never vindictive. It's always a question of charity. We want what's best for our kids. We're trying to help our kids. We realize that if we don't intervene here, it's going to have that leaves an imprint on his soul that says that something's acceptable that's not acceptable, and so on and so forth. And so we have to intervene. And a lot of times, it takes great charity to intervene. We'd much rather just let it go. It takes too much energy. It hurts. Part sometimes charity won't let it go. But the way that we give that punishment, the way that we correct, should always involve those two things. We keep coming back to them. Kindness and firmness. Gentleness and strength. Velvet but steel. We need to be firm in what we do, firm in the consequences that we give, but gentle in the manner that we give them. Part of that gentleness, part of that understanding of the child is to wait for the right moment. And the right moment is never when you're angry. Now, it's a little difficult sometimes when we're dealing with a three-year-old because three-year-olds, if you don't correct on the spot, they're not going to remember why you're correcting them. So you have to correct on the spot. It's quite a different thing when you're dealing with a nine-year-old. He'll remember very well. I remember so when we grew up, we had what was called the list. It was a bad thing. Right? <laughs> if we did something that was beyond what mom felt she could or should handle. She simply put our name on a whiteboard inside the door. It was called the list. And when dad came in, the first thing he saw was the list. And the last thing we wanted dad to see was the list. Not that dad would respond immediately. Dad was pretty good for that. He wouldn't say a word for a while. <laughs> he came in. He had his coffee and he read his newspaper. He probably had his dinner. And then he called us out on the porch or wherever. That was a painful three hours. But dad was wise. Dad was wise. He was waiting till he settled in and he knew it wouldn't hurt us one bit to wait. In fact, made it that much more difficult. But he wasn't angry when he corrected. When we were, we got hit with a list. Dad wasn't the one that had to deal with the problem. Now he's just punishing. So he would say, your mom told me that this happened. Is that what happened? What have I said? Okay. And then the punishment came. Right. 
Don't punish when your child is angry. Don't punish when you are angry. Either side. Because it's not taken correctly. Anger colors the picture. That's why we say he was so angry he was seeing red. Right? The picture is not accurate anymore. It's colored by the anger. You don't want either side not seeing the picture accurately when a punishment is administered. That's when injustice happens. That's when excessiveness happens. And that's when resentment on the other side happens. So wait for the proper moment. At times, know when to be silent. That waiting for the proper moment means simply at the moment, I don't say a word. I remember growing up a few times that my dad was silent, that I thank him for today. Because I know if he had said something at that moment, of course I was a teenager, what else, right? If he had said something at that moment, I was not prepared to hear it. In fact, I was primed to not hear it. And so he was wise. He said nothing at that moment. Correct as far as possible in private. You have multiple children, right? The best thing is in private. That was another good thing about the list. Everybody knew the problem was dealt with. Nobody was privy to the details except the one that suffered them. So there was no humiliation involved other than having your name on the list. But that was something which was foreseen beforehand. We were rarely put on the list without a warning. Do I have to write your name on the board? So there was an opportunity to avoid it. And it was simply something that had to follow at that point. But correct as far as possible in private, because to not do so is to back a kid against a wall, especially young boy, not little boy, but 10-year-old, 13-year-old, 15-year-old especially. Right? When you back a kid against the wall, he's got to fight. The last thing you want to do is oblige your child to fight you. So you don't want to put him into a situation where you basically set him up for a fall. St. John Bosco wrote, A fatherly word in private is worth more than many sentences of reproachful language in public. You can see from these rules, first of all, they're only common sense. Secondly, they require tremendous generosity, selflessness, energy, self-discipline to follow them consistently. It's not an easy thing. But because we care about our kids, we're willing to pay that price. And we strive for that ideal. And our Lord, who understands our human nature and our weaknesses and the fact that we're not always at our best and so on, he, takes, he picks up where we leave off. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He expects us to, to try to be perfect. He expects us to try to be as his Father in heaven in dealing with those souls that are his children. 
And if we're trying, he's very much working with us every step of the way. And you can see how he'll take care of the kids in that case, but he's also taking care of our own souls. Because by that generosity of effort, by that charity that is ours in our daily effort to be true parents to our children, we sanctify our own soul. And we become more like our Father in Heaven, which is our vocation, to mirror the goodness of our God in today's world. So it's a cause for these considerations, I think, for reflection, certainly, but also for encouragement. God understands, and we know what we have to do, and we only have to do our best. So we can stop there. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Some examples you said about making up some simple rules. If you have multiple children and they're all different ages in your home, do you have? I mean, I find it difficult. Okay, no fighting. That's not a rule. That's <laughs> a given. Yeah, I mean, that, that's. Right? Can you give yeah. us an example of some rules? And can you give us um, wipe your feet when you come in the door. Um, you do the dishes immediately after the meal. You do your chores at the time that you're expected to do your chores. Example, right? Um, you things things basically that pertain to either charity towards God or charity towards your neighbor in the house. Right? Charity towards God, well, that you simply avoid sin. So anything that's sinful, well, that's under that list, right? But then charity towards your neighbor, it's a question of consideration for others in the house, right? For example, you pick up after yourself. You don't leave a mess every room you go into. You don't make noise like you're the only one that lives in this house. You don't help yourself to the food as if it's only your food and there's no one else that eats. You're really trying to teach the children charity. And so the rules that you have are always looking in that direction. And they're things that go that are just normal, basically. You don't have for your home, probably, Rules that are, this is exceptional to our household. Probably not. They're simply rules that, it's a question of charity. Either God or the souls around you. We'll get back into that more in the next, in the next conference, actually. Boundaries, examples of boundaries. Where are the boundaries coming from? The consequences, um, that's really, I guess, the, the big problem when they're not acting charitably toward, like you're telling the story that the little girl and said, you know, sit in the, sit in the chair. Well, you know, I, I've seen lots of times in the chair that the kid gets up out of the chair and doesn't sit in the chair. And you put the child back in the chair. Mm-hmm. When do you spank them? See, I probably, if, if, if it's a question of, I mean, a little child, she was two, three, I don't know, the most. A spanking there would be training. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be punishment. Right? There's a distinction that is very important. Right? Little kids. The whole corporal punishment thing is really a misnomer for the most part. Right? It's a question of corporal training. 
Right? The child gets up off the chair, sit back down. And it's not over my knee, bam, 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 bam. It's up off the chair, sit back down. Up off the chair, sit back down. Uh, it's a training thing, and, and you have to win that battle. Right? You have to win that battle. It's different when you have a, a nine-year-old, right? And you say, sit down in that chair, right? And he says, I am not, and gets up and goes. Right? Don't spank him. He's too old for it. He's too old for it. Now punishment is called for, but not corporal. He's too old for it. You're going to create, it's going to force him into a corner, create rebellion. And to me, I mean, spanking to me is basically before the use of reason. I'm not saying it can never be after that. But for the most part, for the most part, it's a question of training. So, okay, the child, because he was rebellious and angry, said, I'm not doing it, and gets up and goes away. You could let it go at that moment for a few moments, let him calm down, and then go find him, and then talk to him. You could let it go. You don't have to. He's a nine-year-old. He knows he's done something very wrong. Right? You don't have to run after him and get back here, young man. You sit down there. No, you don't have to. You do have to respond to the inappropriate action at the appropriate time. That's for sure. You can't let that go. You have to respond. And there has to be an appropriate punishment at that point. Yeah, that's, my, that's my question. And so corporal punishment is kind of for younger children, three, four, five years old, and then once they get past 79 years old. We've got some in every age. Mm -hmm, sure. <laughs> so then, what, then what do you consider uh, First of all, you have to realize that with, with the young, Punishment is anything that is everything that is is considered punishment. Right? Uh, you, you first of all do reflect ahead of time when there's a particular pattern of action, and you know this is going to happen. That's good in a certain sense because you can say, "How are we going to respond to that?" And what you want really is you want you want to have to choose punishments that fit that are a consequence that fits the inappropriate action. I'll give you an example. Um, once my little sister, I have a lot of little sisters, it could have been any of them, right? But once my little sister, who was a teenager at the time, right, she plays piano. She plays piano very well, in fact, right? Well, anyway, she plays the piano, but she was playing the piano right after the meal when mom had asked her, told her, to do the dishes. It was her chore. She didn't feel like doing the dishes, so she just didn't say anything, and she went into the the piano room and she was sitting there playing the piano. So mom let it go for a few minutes and then she came in and she said, so-and-so, go do your dishes. She kept playing. My mom said, no piano for the next week. Now go do your dishes. She kept playing. Pretty tough character. My mom said, no piano for the next two weeks. She kept playing. Didn't even flinch. Didn't even flinch. It was a question of authority. It was a question of her asserting her will. My mom said, no piano for the next month. She slammed the lid shut and went in the kitchen. 
Battle's over. Mom wins. No anger. A punishment that fits the offense. And that's the kind of thing that you try to do. It can be, you know, there was, okay, abuse of of the piano. It could be abuse of the phone, abuse of the computer, missed curfew, um, didn't do your homework. Always try, as much as you can, you pick a punishment that fits the offense and that is proportionate to it. So here, I would agree with the punishment being proportionate to the offense because it was blatant disrespect. All right, we all have our moments. We can look back. I, I remember I had my moments worse than that one, for sure. Right, so I'm certainly not villainizing my little sister, but it was blatant disrespect. Right, and she had a hard lesson to learn, and she learned it. Right. I think my mom didn't go real quick in a row there. I think she walked away each time and came back and upped it. Walked away. Just, I, just to let take the pressure off. I don't have to be standing right here when you get up and go do it. But took the pressure off, went away, came back, went away, came back, went away, came back. Okay, that's it. Finally wins the battle. See, the problem here is I can't give you, if you you wanted to give me a concrete thing, I could give you what I would say, well, maybe this would work, maybe this would work. But remember, it's an art, which means with your kids and your family and your approach, it's... It's going to be different than, than mine, and I don't know your kids, and I, the principles are what matters. Right? And that's why, that's why these rules. And there's what you say, that's where a husband and a wife is very good to talk. Not in front of the kids. It's not something where you sit down and say, well, how are we going to handle so-and-so? I mean, she's been doing No, this is behind closed doors. This is, this is a parent thing. Right? But you talk together and you say, you know what? I've noticed this, and it's becoming a pattern. What can we do? And you bounce ideas off of one another, and you know each other, and you know your child, and you come up with a plan. You're on the same page. It's a plan that respects these principles, and then you follow through. And if it doesn't work, you try something else. There are going to be times that it doesn't work. I mean, you try something that another parent would tell you, I did this, and it worked perfectly. My child, the problem's done. And you try it, and it doesn't do a thing. Well, don't keep hitting your head against the wall, right? Spanking is like that. I tell parents, even when it's a little one, like that little Mary that I told you about, spanking doesn't work with a child like that. It's funny you gave that example. We have, we have you know. Mary, so. I was okay. <laughs> is she tough like that? <laughs> she, she, that? That story could have been her. <laughs> when she was little, sure. And See, spanking didn't work. No. And, and a wise parent says, you know what? This isn't working. This isn't helping. So you don't say, well, corporal punishment is good. And we need, no, it's, it's a question of, you know what, we've got to help our child. This isn't helping, so we try something different. We'll press a different button until we find the right one. The thing is, is you're not backing down on the lines. Right? Well, you said about a concrete example. Because we homeschool, you think that you wouldn't have bullying, but we've got like bullying going on with Sure. Boys, particularly, mm-hmm. like big bullying each other, and like the little ones kind of fighting back. Sure. Um, that that it's it's hard. <laughs> I'm finding it hard. Right, and you know, of course, what's going on there? I mean, the little ones can be irritating the big ones, and that I mean, that's that's a normal thing of family life. I and mean, little ones are irritating. 
you know, I'm doing building my building and my building's nice and big and the baby comes along and knocks the whole thing down. And so, I mean, those things happen and it's part of family life and how do we respond to that appropriately, you know? And see there, a question like that, you would be a question of understanding. I said, look, you know, I understand you're upset, but, you know, why don't you play in your room or up on the table where he can't reach? But you don't come down too hard because you understand he was frustrated and whatever. That's a different thing than constantly looking for something in the little one and picking at him. Pick, 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 pick. There you have probably, you have an older child trying to assert his authority and not knowing how to do it. A lot of times it's simply that. He doesn't know how to assert authority. This child is obviously immature and obviously doing this wrong and this wrong, and but he doesn't know how to respond to that. So it's a question of teaching him how. At other times, it's a child. And it's, what I'm trying to show is you always go to what's causing the problem. Right? So another time it might be your child, he's trying to stand on his own two feet. Right? And he's trying to be a man. And so part of being a man is being tough and being, right? okay, well, how do you respond to that? Probably in a positive sense by looking for opportunities to let him be the leader and to be the man. Right? It's a silly example, but I remember one time there was a big thunderstorm. I was growing up. I don't know how old I was. I have no idea at this point. I know I was a little boy, maybe nine. Right? And there was a bad thunderstorm. Dad used to work at night. At that point, he was on second shift. It was a really bad thunderstorm. And my mom woke me up and said, Gerard, it's a really bad storm. I'd like you to sit up with me. And just in case something happens. Well, you couldn't have done anything that made me feel more confident in myself and my role than that. That's the kind of thing you look for opportunities. And I'm sure my mom really wanted a kid up because there were a lot of kids in the house and if something happened, she wanted help to be able to respond to it. Right. So, But she chose me. She could have chosen someone else. It was wonderful. Right. So silly and yet so significant in the mind of a child. Right. Am I getting anywhere? Right. So you always go to the cause and you always try to respond to the cause as opposed to just looking at the effect, then you don't treat your brother that way. Yes? So for those of us that are 10 to 15 years into parenting, and this is the first one of these that we've attended, how do we get ourselves out of the holes? <laughs> it's a great question, actually. Um, it's the same exact thing that we do with our soul. Right? We dig a hole for our soul, and all of a sudden we go, how did I get here? The light goes on, we understand certain things that we didn't understand before, so what do we do? We start now. And that's all God asks, and it's amazing how God can take someone and pick them up, and they're on the track. Not that there aren't consequences that are there. I mean, we have bad habits maybe to correct or whatever, but we're on track. Right. And God's working, and they were okay. It's the same things with our children. Right. As soon as we know where we're at, or we see something, and you'll discover things. As you, I mean, this isn't. It's not like I'm flipping on lights all over the place here, right? We're simply we're in a closed environment. And we're talking, so lights go on, and we see how things fit. Sometimes maybe we we knew before, but all of a sudden we see it now a little bit more clearly. Okay, act in accordance with the lights that you receive. 
Not just today, but any day. Talk to your spouses. Right? Remember, raising children is a teamwork thing. Right? Use your spouse to talk about. We're talking here, and so lights go on. Take time and talk about things with your spouses. Even if maybe they're not 100% on the same page with you, talk with them. Right? And that's how you get more on the same page. And realize that, you know what? Both of you, you love your children. Both of you are trying to do a good job. Let's help each other do a good job. Right? And as we learn, as we discover something, as we see that this works and this doesn't, we continue to adjust. If you look in the NFL today, or I was just reading an article, the best coaches are considered those who adjust the best at halftime and throughout the game. It's not... Sorry about that. I thought it was coming from over here, and I was like, I don't know what I can do about that. (laughs) So they say the best coaches are not those that have come up with the best strategy before. Well, that's important. It's those that adjust as they go. They see where we're at. We're not where we wanted to be. Well, then we'll do it this way. And they're the ones, they say, that's a key. That is one of the keys to being successful in the NFL. Well, it's one of the keys to being a successful parent as well. This isn't working. I thought it was going to go this way. It's not. You know, with child number one, two, and three, it worked just fine. And now child number four comes along and nothing we did before works. Right? Okay. Then we've got to adjust to that. We respond to that. We try something different. But the principles never change. That's, that's the thing. They never change. And the bottom line principle is firm but kind, kind but firm. Gentle but strong, strong but gentle. Some of this stuff is non-negotiable. Well, really, most of it's non-negotiable with the child, right? So. Yeah. So if we realize that there's a lot of things that we've been doing wrong and we decide, well, we've got to correct this, it's going to seem like a lot to the child all at once. We've got teenagers. Be careful of flipping switches, especially with your teenagers. Take into account where they're at. And see, it's the same principle, though, right? Remember we said correction is always a matter of what will help get back on track. While going home and saying, boom, 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 is that going to help get back on track? It's going to help them move out, <laughs> right? But that's not necessarily what you're trying to do, right? So it's always a question of, you know what? There's this and there's this, and somehow we've got to respond to that. So what, what's our plan going to be? How are we going to do that? How are we going to work towards that goal? How are we going to, to turn the jet plane, so to speak, right? Well, one more from last night was, you know, love is wanting what's good for the loved one. How, where do you draw the line, or how do you know when you are being overprotective? You know, a lot of us pull our kids out of public school, for instance, and homeschool, yeah. and kind of make them feel isolated. But there's other examples. Can we save that question for the next conference? All right, because it, it ties in. Right. It ties in very much. It's a good question, a critical question. Yes. Um, what about apologizing to your child? For example, if they've done something, and maybe your correction wasn't the best way to correct. Mm-hmm. You didn't correct, or sure. you, know, you were frustrated when you corrected. Sure, sure. You know, I've heard, I've heard said, oh, you should never, you know, even though you did the wrong thing, you shouldn't apologize. But, you know, I, I wondered if you could apologize to your child for the way that you corrected, not that you're saying they didn't need to be corrected. Absolutely. Making it clear. I mean, how? 
very good point, and it's I'm absolutely in agreement with you. Right? Remember, the child has to see you as benevolent. You're looking for his good. Well, in your response, because of a headache or whatever, who knows, right? The response didn't come across as benevolent at all. Right? And you know, because you're an adult and you know what the response should have been, you know it wasn't appropriate. Well, he knows too. Right? To go to the child and say, I'm sorry I blew up at you, but you do understand why I was angry. We've talked about that and talked about that. That does not make you lose authority. You've just gained. One time when I was, I don't know how old I was, 14 maybe, my dad spanked me. I, you, I deserved a stiff punishment. There's no question about it. I was blatantly disrespectful. Right? And he turned me over his knee. Well, I was, I was as mad as mad could be. I was this far from going off, really going off. Which, that's why we don't corporally punish when you have an older child. Right? He's trying to stand on his own two feet. It's a normal response. Well, I deserved the punishment. But because my dad got mad at how disrespectful I was, that's the way he responded. Right? That night before I went to bed, which was probably only a few hours later, I don't remember. But I went by him to go to the restroom before I went up the stairs. And he said, Gerard, come here. And I went over to him and he said, I shouldn't have spanked you. But let's not have any more of that. Everything was fine. Just that. Everything was fine. It was a good thing he did do that. But just that. So he didn't go on and on. He didn't feel sorry. Because I was wrong too. But he just said, I shouldn't have spanked you. But no more of that. That was it. As an adult now, I look back on things like that and I say, thank God for a good parent. Because you realize, see, those things are pivotal. Those things are pivotal. That was a why in the roads right there. And he made the initial mistake and did a U-turn without compromising the principles even a little bit. There's charity and strength, too. And it was huge. And for me, I mean, I remember. I remember. Yes? A couple of questions. Um, well, first was what you were talking about right here. <clears throat> Paying attention to the way that your child reacts to your punishment. Is that also key, too, because maybe your father noticed how you reacted to that sure. and, and was like, okay, this is a bigger deal to him, to you, than it was to him. Perhaps. I think it was a big deal to him. I mean, because he understands those principles. But you're absolutely right. Know your child. You have to know your child to know what's going to work with him. And every child's different. The principles are the same, but every child is not the same. Right? And you don't you don't respond to one the way you respond to another. You have to be just with both. But it takes so little to correct some children, and it takes a very firm hand to correct with others. Some, when you correct them, the smallest thing will stick with them, and others, you correct them, and five minutes later, they totally forgot it. 
you take those things into account. You're absolutely right. Sometimes I've gotten upset at my son, and most times it just bounces off of him. And then sometimes I see that he really feels like his feelings are hurt, and I can tell by the way he's walked away or sure. went to his room. And so I feel like you know there needs to be you know almost an apology or just you know more of a discussion to explain that. Sure. That particular. Instance. Sure. Yeah. By going back to your sister, uh, disrespecting your mother, mm-hmm. how as a parent. When you're being disrespected, I mean, I guess maybe try to help us um, understand how you're not supposed to take that so personally that you do get extremely angry mm-hmm. and, and, and do something completely different than your mother did. Sure. Well, it's a question of keeping things in perspective. You're dealing with a teenage girl there right, with all the teenage difficulties, and that's a whole series of conferences. Maybe we'll do someday. But you take that into account. Teenage girls and teenage boys too, they're going to do and say things. There's not reflection, it's a response. And you take into account, they're not adults. They're teenagers with all the teenage thing going on. And that doesn't make what they did right. But you respond differently because of it. Just like you respond differently to your one-year-old when he throws a tantrum, as opposed to your six-year-old who throws a tantrum. There's a big difference. Right? You respond completely differently. Right? What you don't want to do is to go down to the level of the child. She's being disrespectful, and so you go down to her level and blow your top and lose the gravity and the authority that you have. Right? You go to her level, basically. Right? She's out of line, now you're out of line. And now you go back and forth at being out of line. She yells at you, you yell at her. She yells at you, you continue to yell at her. Well, both sides have lost, but especially the mom or dad, as the case may be. So you don't want to, you know, and it's the same thing like the example we gave with don't try to convince the child that your reasons are just or that they're appropriate. You know, that your decision is the right one. Simply, this is the decision, here's why I made it. And I'm sorry you don't agree, but that's the way it's going to be. Don't go down to their level and go back and forth. You've lost your authority. See what I'm saying? But you're right. Take self-control. Uh, because our automatic, we're pride. We're proud. Right? When an automatic, somebody you know, shows scorn or apparent scorn for us, the first thing we do is, you won't treat me that way. It's not the answer. Yeah, it's one of your rules. <laughs> yeah. That you don't, I mean, so you... Yeah. You react that way. Yeah. You break one of those rules. Yep. You got it. Uh, and the last question was uh, based on uh, you were saying concrete examples of, of discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have young, our children are three and four, and getting them to eat is very difficult. Right. Uh, most every night, and you know, they're threatened with a paddle. Usually, by the time we get to the point of you know, to use the paddle, then why are they not eating? They don't want to eat the food, or they like to play, talk, just do anything else but eat. Right. Um, well, it might be because, I mean, are they eating snacks? You look into that, see whether they're not hungry. Um, if they're not liking the food, is it because they're getting too much of food that maybe has spoiled their tastes? All right, so they don't want real food. They want 
if they're going to eat, their need for food has been satisfied somewhere else, obviously. So you've got to look at what are you feeding them for snack? What are you feeding them, period, that they're not interested in healthy food? Uh, because we, we, we like what we know when it comes to food. Everybody thinks their mother's the best cook in the world, for example. Uh, it's what we knew growing up, and that's, that's it. Right? So you've got to look at those things. When it comes to fooling around, you're right. Kids can be um, too focused. Well, if you could try what we try in school... Um, sometimes is the first 10 minutes of the meal, you know, it's, you know, with music or, you know, a, a story on or something like that, where, okay, it's just quiet and you listen, and then everybody talks. All right. So in other words, you're not talking, you're not fooling around, so you might as well be eating type thing. Look at where it's coming from and then try different things along those lines.